This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. Hey everyone, it's Dennis Berger, editor of Soundstage Access. And this is Brent Butterworth, editor of Soundstage Solo. And we both write for the Soundstage Network, which is a collection of nine microsites that cover all sorts of topics in audio, from connected audio to headphones and everything in between. But we're here today to talk about the topics that matter to us, and we hope to you. Well, we'll <laughs> see. I don't know. I, uh, I think we got three pretty cool topics this week. I would like to start off with a story from Strategy. It's called Data Suggests Inflation-Impacted Consumers Are Trading Down. Um, it's basically mm. a story about how, you know, given inflation, given everything that's going on, people are trending toward buying higher-value products instead of higher price products. Mm. And that includes high-income consumers. So mm. we're going to talk about how that might have some intersection with the audio domain. What do you want to talk about this week, Brent? I would like to talk about, you know, there's a piece over on Stereophile.com that's talking about the fact that this is Stereophile's 60th anniversary. And I would like to, I actually go back a long way with Stereophile. I started reading it in 91 and it was honestly, it was kind of a lot of the inspiration for my career. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd like to kind of go back and talk about that, but also talk about how things have changed so much since then in the press. Everything is so different and not just because of, you know, the Internet and YouTube and things like that. Just just everything. So many things about the press have changed and a lot of it is because of Stereophile, I think. Huh. And what's next? What's after that? Well, uh, we have just had the EISA Best Products of 2022-2023 announced. Mm -hmm. Soundstage has coverage of that. Um, like to dig into what the EISA awards are, uh, how they're picked, what they mean. And I think you and I ought to maybe pick out a couple of our favorite products. You and I are not oh, cool. involved in the voting for this, no. but I thought they you and I... They didn't ask us. No, they didn't ask us. Therefore, all the picks are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely correct. But yeah, I thought I thought that'd be a cool conversation um, since we haven't had any audio shows in a while to just sort of dig through these awards and go, hey, here's here's something I think is really cool and I think worth uh, worthy of attention. So... But first, before we get to that, let's talk about this story from Ted Green. Um, okay. We've talked about Ted before. He runs a website called Strategy, which is mm -hmm. S-T-R-A-T-A-G-E-E.com. Mm -hmm. Ted is a legend in the industry. Um, many people might know him from Onkyo. He does a lot of business-related reporting, and I would say he is probably one of the only actual journalists working in our field. He does a yeah. lot of really, really, really good um, business-related reporting. But he has a write-up about new data that seems to suggest that high-income consumers are trading down to high-value products. And the source of this comes from Walmart, which um, I think everybody was expecting to have a really awful second quarter, mm -hmm. and even, even Walmart expected to have a really awful second quarter and it's not like profits were super high, but they had a much, much better, um, second quarter than expected. They did turn a profit 
and yeah. uh, they they had good revenue. And some analysis suggests that um, more than anything else, it was an uptick in high income um, consumers that normally would not shop at Walmart. You were now mm-hmm. shopping at Walmart as a result of the downturn in the economy and the inflation that we're experiencing. So what do they do? What a so. What does Walmart define as a high-end consumer? Oh, that's a good question. That was a leading question. I think they defined it as as a uh, hundred thousand plus household income. Oh yeah, which yep, is yep, yep, yep. Very different from what I think the high-end audio industry would consider a high-end <laughs> consumer. Yeah, I don't think a hundred thousand a year would would count as high income in anywhere except for maybe Alabama where I live. That's household <laughs> income. Yeah, that's that's household income. Yeah. Um, too. That's not like your income. Right. Um so you know family of four, hundred thousand bucks is not much money. Um no. But Walmart considers that high end. But I'm I'm kind of wondering though, does this indicate if if you know what the high end audio industry considers high end consumers? Which I don't know what that is, but I would just say probably household income of at least double that. Oh, at least yeah, two hundred three hundred thousand a year probably because so much of the focus. Yeah, look. You can always get really good audio products for the prices that average people can afford. However, the, as we've discussed many times, the focus of this industry now is on these super, super, super high-end products that you're talking about the top, you know, 1% or even 0.1% yeah. can afford. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a graph in here from Chicago Booth Review that basically shows uh, buying trends for all number of categories from like 2006 all the way through 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's broken down by health and beauty, alcoholic beverages, dry goods, uh, non-food, general merchandise, um, fresh food, meat, frozen food, all sorts of topics. And this this shows that it's a pretty pretty consistent trend in every economic downturn. There there is a shift toward everyone moving huh. toward more high value products, and I, I thought that was kind yeah. of interesting. But yeah, um, interestingly enough, amplifiers and speakers are not a category in this. <laughs> so this is an outrage. Yeah, yeah. There's interestingly though, there's one thing: these that, people should be in jail. <laughs> lock them up um (laughs) there's there's you know interestingly though you know throughout the course of this there's a lot of discussion in this reporting there's a lot of conflation between high price and high quality and low price and low quality yeah and i think that's one of the places where we sort of have to divorce this discussion from audio if we're going to Hmm. consider audio as part of this trend because you know i think if anything, over the past few years, it's been proven that there's not a not a huge correlation anymore between price and quality in audio. Some of the best products that I've heard in recent years have been super affordable. I mean, hell, I cover nothing yeah. but high value audio, so I did take issue with that that conflation with you know low price equals low quality, high price equals high quality. But I'm wondering how yeah. much of this could be. I wonder how much correlation there is here between these trends. One thing to consider is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in all, in all of these products that they're talking about, these are things that people need every week or every month or something like that. Let's yeah. face it, right now in this economic downturn, you don't need to buy a new amplifier every month. You don't need new speakers no. every month. I mean, every few months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe once a quarter, uh, yeah. upgrade your amp. But, um, 
Yeah, I mean, but but I think anybody maybe right now who is getting into audio, who is pushed in the direction of going for more high value product as a result, I think it's going to be interesting maybe what they discover. Just give you one example. A couple okay. of months ago, I reviewed this Marantz Model 40N integrated amplifier. Mm-hmm. Really amazing piece. When I unboxed the thing, I looked at it and thought, oh, crap, I've made a mistake. Like, I thought this thing was like 2500 bucks, but this is like, this is like obviously like a $5,000 amp, you know? And mm-hmm. then that was before listening to it. That was just the build quality and the connections yeah. and everything like that. And no, it was 2500 bucks. And then I shipped it to Doug for him to do photography and to get it to Diego for measurements. And Doug emailed me saying, oh, man, I thought you had screwed up. Like, I'm looking at this thing thinking this has got to be a $20,000 amplifier. <laughs> And then I looked yeah. up the price and it's 2500 bucks. And so that'll tell you, I mean, we've said for a while that performance, you know, not a big difference, but one of the big things you get when you upgrade to higher priced products is better build quality, better mm-hmm. fit and finish, things like that, better design. I mean, I think, heck, the Model 40N is proving even that's not true anymore. So I think if anybody is driven to the higher value product right now because of this economic downturn, what they're going to find is they're getting a lot more for their money than they thought they would probably. Yeah, and you spend more, and it it gets more into like a luxury goods sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where you're not necessarily getting better perform, it's like a a luxury car. At some point, you know, extreme sports cars aside, right? Like a luxury sedan, right? You're not really getting better performance. You're just getting, maybe it looks nicer. Maybe the interior is a little bit nicer. Maybe it's got some super cool feature that somebody else doesn't have. Maybe it's got a Burmester sound system or who who knows what, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't really have better performance above a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of years ago at a car show, my dad and I backed our vet in and a a guy with a Ferrari F12 Berlinetta Mm -hmm. pulled it right next to us. And my dad and I were like, oh crap, nobody's going to look at our vet with a Ferrari parked next to us. But it gave me a chance to really look at the F12 Berlinetta and compare Mm -hmm. because if you look at the, they're very similar looking cars. We have a C7 Corvette. Um, I mean, you know, at a glance, you would think the F12 Berlinetta is a Corvette, but Mm -hmm. Really, one of the biggest differences I noticed was in the seats. Like you could tell the seats in the in the in the Ferrari were like hand stitched, right? Yeah. The stitching was just much better quality. The dashboard was like like almost looked handcrafted, and and you know, look, there's value in stuff like that. N- yeah, no 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 doubt about it. But yeah, I think to your point, I think that's a lot of what you're getting in audio. Maybe hand wired circuit boards or things like that, which you know, yeah, like, except um, in cars. You know, that has a, a V12 engine, I assume, right? So mm-hmm. in cars, you know, more cylinders is perceived as better. Whereas in audio, in like amplifiers, less is perceived often as better. Mm, you know, simpler is better. That's and a really good point. <laughs> just, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just a making really a stupid though. point, but it's kind of it's kind of interesting how... Uh, the perceptions of people, and you know, of course, a V12 doesn't necessarily perform any better than a V8. I would assume. I don't know anything uh, about cars, but I don't think it has any more displacement. Oh well, I think I think maybe it's got like a tenth of a liter more displacement, something like that. It's okay, but very, still, very it's very not. Minor. There's no. I mean, there are there are inherent advantages to different cylinders. But once you get up to eight, you got plenty to work with, yeah. and and also, um, you know, with audio. It's this whole 
idea that, you know, simpler is better and amps that have like three watts are better than amps that have 300 mm -hmm. is similarly just, it's just faddish. You know, it's just, mm -hmm. it's sort of a reverse numbers game. But you know, yeah. these things happen. So what do you think this means for headphones? If you had to speculate. I think it means nothing for headphones. Um, I think <laughs> headphones, well, because headphones are relatively cheap. And the headphone market is very much, you know, audio people tend to buy stuff and then not buy something new. And they, they just tend to have one system, maybe two. Whereas headphone people, headphone enthusiasts have a ton of headphones. And they're always buying new headphones. So it's almost like collecting as opposed to what audio you know more more mainstream audio people do it's like collecting you know guitars or something you never have enough or and, records or records yeah. and um so the headphone crowd i think will not be i mean obviously headphone sales are going to be affected by overall economic trends but i don't think the mix of high-end to low-end headphones is going to matter to these people because they have you know pretty good disposable income and they can afford a, you know, to spend a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks or whatever the headphone costs, and it's not a big deal to them. As opposed to, you know, some of these amplifiers in high end audio now are twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Likewise, the speakers, likewise the preamp, likewise the turntables, and that's a much bigger expense. And then you got a bunch of stuff cluttering up your house. You could have ten. 10, 20 sets of headphones and it's still not going to clutter up your house unless you just leave them flopping all over the place as I do. <laughs> Guilty. Guilty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I think we've kind of said all we have to say about this one. Do you have anything cool. else you want to say? No, I'm, I'm eager for a musical interlude. Let's take a musical interlude and we'll be back in just a minute. back this is the soundstage audiophile podcast i'm brent butterworth and i'm dennis berger and so for our second segment we are going to talk about an article that appeared on stereophile.com that is talking about the 60th anniversary of stereophile magazine and it's by john atkinson who was the editor for I, I don't know how long decades. yeah he came the in the late really, 80s right yeah so he he really and he just he just became technical editor what four years ago or something or so yeah. we should probably go look all this stuff up before somebody <laughs> rakes us over the coals but whatever um no we're, we're here we're, to talk about the important stuff man not yes. dates no so. we're not, not here to get all of our dates right we're not history teachers so yeah. um anyway so john talks about um, you know, how the magazine was formed by, was founded by Gordon Holt. And, uh, you know, he talks about why the, the magazine has, has had good longevity and stuff like that. And of course, you know, there's <laughs> not surprisingly, not surprisingly for an audio publication, there's a little bit of chest beating, although the chest beating is not real loud here, but, yeah. um, I, I wanted to talk about this because I, I really, it really brought back some great memories for me. And honestly, Stereophile 
had a giant effect on my career, even though I never actually worked for them. Um, almost did. <laughs> many, 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 many years ago, I was very close and I ended up taking a different job. But uh, I think I wrote like two articles for them, maybe in partnership with Steve Guttenberg. But oh, wow. so, so I found out about Stereophile because I was in the hospital way back in 91, I think. And um, my friend Ken Corman, who was a, a fellow editor of mine at Video Magazine, brought me some high-end audio journals just kind of as a joke. Hmm. Um, to, you know, for reading in the hospital. And so I, it was stereophile, absolute sound and hi-fi heretic. And, hmm. uh, hi-fi heretic is the one that resonated the most with me because he was like, Hey man, you know, he was kind of like us. He was like, Hey man, you don't have to go spend a fortune. You can get really good stuff for 500, 600, a thousand bucks, something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But he, I, I don't, he didn't last all that. The guy's name was Oh, Kent somebody, but he, he didn't last all that long, sadly, but stereophile did and stereophile, I, I kind of got in. So if I got in at 91, they were still in a fair, fairly primitive stage. And John Atkinson had just taken over a couple years before, and mm -hmm. they were just starting to do measurements. And they, the, the influence of John was just starting to be felt. And you could, you could watch that magazine transform. And back then it was digest size, you know, it was like the, like the old reader's digest, but it yeah. was like a, like a little, little tiny miniature magazine. And you could, I would take them with me on, on bike tours and things like that to read. And every, um, you know, they came on, I think they came on the first Saturday of the month because I had a subscription and every Saturday morning I would go do my gym workout. I would get home, Stereophile would be in the mailbox and I go grab it and take it to my favorite little cheap Chinese restaurant in New York and just sit there for like a couple hours <laughs> drinking tea and reading oh, Stereophile. That's, but that's great. I, I wanted to say that I, I don't think a lot of people, you know, I, so I was there through this whole thing. I was in the press during, you know, the whole evolution of this, you know, from their about when they were 28, 29 years old and still kind of, kind of a, 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 a pretty obscure publication, you know, running out of Santa Fe, New Mexico mm -hmm. and when they evolved into what they are. And so back then, I, I think it's really underappreciated how much Stereofall changed the press the audio press because I would go to press events in New York when I was working for video magazine in the early nineties and it was very regimented and you know, all the people's, it was kind of a running joke that like, you know, they'd be like, okay, any questions? And someone would stand up and go, uh, price and availability. And <laughs> <laughs> always like every time. Yeah. And you know, and it was so, and the, 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 most of the people that wrote about it were not really that much into audio or mm -hmm. video, they were just, they were trade reporters, you know, they were, they were, they might end up working at, I mean, I, I went into there from spin magazine, you know, I was not an audio guy or video guy. I became one, but so many of those people really weren't interested in the gear. It was just, that was their gig. And they had worked on all sorts of magazines in New York. Cause that's what you did. Mm -hmm. And there were a few technical guys. There was like, you know, there was my old buddy, Lance Braithwaite. There was Lynn Thelman. There was Ed Foster, uh, Julian Hirsch, people like that who would do the, the testing, but they didn't have a whole lot to do with the way the magazines were edited or written. And, and the reviews would start out with like, you know, the, uh, you know, the JVC something or another is a forehead VCR with uh, these features. And mm -hmm. Stereophile really, I think, over the course of, you know, the early 90s started to change that. And I think John really, I, I think he wanted to enliven it and get people more 
involved. Mm-hmm. And part of the way they did that is through much better writing and much more sort of engaging writing by people that were really into the stuff, not by people who were just regurgitating the press release, people who had their own take on this stuff and who cared about it. Yeah. And I think John really changed the whole industry because he hired, he found this guy named Corey Greenberg, who um, some of us old schoolers remember nobody. I mean, Corey, I don't think has written for anybody for 20 years or something or 15 years, but um, you know, he, he was this sort of, he was like the Hunter S Thompson of audio writing when he came out in the early nineties. And it was just, and immediately everybody was, he, he was, it was, or maybe it was kind of like John Coltrane, you know, John Coltrane, when he started hitting, everybody tried to sound like John Coltrane mm-hmm. and so many writers, I think Corey coming out with his really just radically involving and exciting sort of writing about audio made a lot of the stereophile writers kind of raise their game, made me raise my game. Uh, I eventually ended up working with him, uh, made a, a people like Al Griffin, another friend of ours, you know, really kind of tried to to hit that level of excitement and engagement and creativity. Yeah. And the fact that John sort of spotted that and encouraged it eventually changed, in my view, the entirety of audio publishing. And I'm going to say, I think audio publishing has drifted back to boring in a mm. lot of ways and there's not that kind of push you know who who's the writer now who you want to emulate uh mm. if you if you're a, a a young person well you're not going to emulate a writer you're going to start a youtube channel right exactly of course to say. but you know that that kind of excitement and innovation and just gutsy you know risk-taking because, you know, when you take risks like that, you know, you're going to lose advertisers. When you, oh, yeah. when you get these really super opinionated, charismatic writers in there or super opinionated YouTube people or whatever, you're going to lose uh, advertisers. And I, I know for sure that I'm sure Stereophone lost a few because they had Corey and the people just didn't think it was it was too... You know, it wasn't serious enough. I mean, I got complaints like that all the time when I was an editor. You know, the, you know, I, I I hired Corey and used him for uh, Video Magazine for a while. And uh, I would get complaints from a few people that were like, well, this is not serious, blah, 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 blah. blah. <laughs> this is taking a cavalier attitude towards the equipment and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And I'm good. like, dude, you're boring. Shut up. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I'm realizing I, I, something. Uh, yeah. It's, what? I, I mean, it's, it's, if, if I'm picking up what you're laying down, you are saying that sort of stereophile in this era influenced the way you covered this material. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I what's think interesting, everybody did. Have I ever told you why I became a writer? No. Because it paid better than uh, <laughs> no no civil, civil engineering and surveying paid much better. Oh, but okay. so so it was the mid nineties, and I was starting to get into home theater because I um I think I've mentioned this before. I'm I'm autistic, and I have uh, major uh, sense sensitivities, and so mm-hmm. it's really hard for me to go to a movie theater and enjoy a movie because if somebody nineteen rows behind me rattles their paper, I'm just out of the movie. So for me, getting into home theater was necessity. You know, it wasn't just like I want to be able to watch movies at home. It's like I want to be able to enjoy movies, and I have to control the environment. And so I started getting into home theater. I guess about a year before DVD came out, and I started reading Home Theater magazine. Interestingly enough. And I was just a fan 
And there was one article in particular that made me think, oh man, I want to do this. I want to, I want to write about this. And it was an article that you did with Al and I Mm. can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was something like voodoo or doo-doo or something like that. Oh, we reviewed a bunch of so-called voodoo audio products and some of them worked and some of them didn't, but we had fun with it. Yeah. And at one point there was like, so the, the, the shack T stone thing that like you put on top of an amp, like you guys put a fortune frog on top of the amp (laughs) instead of the shack T stone. And it was just, it was so that article, like you guys got it. You got it that like this is all about entertainment. This is all about having fun. These are toys. And that made me realize like, I want to do this. I want to make people happy for a living because that article made me so happy. And, and, um, so in a weird way, I'm just realizing now, had it not been for what they were doing with stereophile in the early nineties, you might not have been doing what you were doing with home theater in the mid nineties. And I would still be designing bridges and supervising the creation of, of, of subdivisions and things like that. So. There is no question of it. And I, I and I very well, I, I think I probably would have gone from video magazine to whatever magazine, um, you know, maybe a outdoors magazine or who knows what, because it didn't, I, I didn't have a lot of fire in the belly for VCRs. It was, you know, VCRs and, TVs and stuff like that. It was fine. It was a gig, but the the stereophiles what really showed me that this could be a really creative and exciting thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you when you opened, especially back in the old digest size, God, you'd open that thing and it would just crackle with life. It was just so, you know, all the writers were kind of commenting on each other kind of here and there and stuff like that. And it was really exciting to read and it was a, a lot of fun and I just really loved it. But yeah, it, it's, that is what has been by far the biggest influence on my career. And, um, and they're still there 60 years later, you know, 60 years after founding and all those other audio magazines, I mean, stereo review was folded into sound division and sound division still exists six times a year or something like that. It's, I, I don't think you could say it's prospering. Um, audio magazines gone. Um, you know, uh, all the home theater magazines are, except for uh, Sound and Vision, are gone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, High Fidelity's gone. And it's, uh, you know, Stereophile is still there, along with Absolute Sound. Um, you know, those two are still thriving. And back then they were just seeing, you know, I, re- I remember that somebody, like, like people thought it was really weird that a Stereophile person showed up at a, at a press event. <laughs> Went wow. back in the in the early '90s because they were just seen as this just wackadoodle, far fringe kind of thing, and that's not what you know we professional journalists do. <laughs> um, you know, so one of the things I really love about this about this um, retrospective on the website, sixty years of stereophile, is the they show the cover of the first three issues, and they're really cool and they're really artsy and they're really abstract and there's no you know, sort of subheads on it. There's no hype. It's just, it's cool and it's artsy and it's like, what's that? I want to read that. There's like a, there's like a chess board and instead of chess pieces, it's valves and stuff like that. There's another one that's just like sort of an, you know, abstract deconstruction of, you know, tubes and clips and things like that. And there's no, you know, this app is going to rock your face off. It's all, it's enticing instead of, you know, just sort of like, 
here's what this issue is about. I don't know. I like that. It's, 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 there's something, there's something fun and cheeky about it that I dig. And I wish we had more of that in our industry. So, yeah. And you know what? I just realized something. Stereophile is six months younger than me. Wow. Um, so we'll, we'll see which one of us outlasts the other. <laughs> the race is on. The race is on. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. I'm not going to go to Stereophile's funeral. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll oh, see. man. We'll see. Yeah. All right, man. So, well, you want to you want to take a break, get some water and uh, come back and talk about these awards? Yeah, we'll see you all in a few minutes. All right. Bye. Welcome back to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Dennis Berger. And I'm Brent Butterworth. And in our final segment today, we are going to be talking about the EISA Best Product Awards for 2022-2023. This is the 40th anniversary of the EISA Awards. And for anybody who's not familiar, EISA stands for Expert Imaging and Sound Association. Um, As I understand it, the roots of this were back in the 80s a bunch of um publications that covered cameras got together Mm -hmm. to sort of decide like what was the best product and give them an award and it's grown it's now like a community of 60 technology magazines and websites yeah uh from all around the world that specialize in hi-fi home theater photo in car home electronics mobile electronics stuff like that um and yeah yeah is it 30 okay cool 30 countries Um, yeah and soundstage is is one of those publications one of the 60 so um although soundstage gets to vote and by the way we should say brent nor i has any say in this we don't know who from the publication votes i guess doug could tell us that maybe it's just doug but um but but it's a secret ballot. So nobody at soundstage can say, Hey, we voted for this product. Um, but a lot of the publications do cover say here, here are the awards, here are the products that, that won. And then on soundstage now on soundstage, hi-fi now, um, you can see the best products from the hi-fi category and the home theater audio category. So Brent, what do you think about awards like this what do you think the value is not surprisingly i have some opinions Mm -hmm. because you know i've worked for a zillion publications and a lot of them had awards and in so many cases uh i I really actually like this because i mean yeah it's a lot of people voting on it and you know it's gonna be and you know some of the people voting on it are not super heavy duty some of them are among the most heavy duty experts in in the audio industry some are not but everybody gets an equal vote um but you know it's it is less so many awards programs i'll tell you from a from a publishing professionals experience so many awards programs are just an excuse to give companies awards so that you you know you can carry favor with them in some way 
Or and, it's a way to reward advertisers, basically. Well, yeah, basically, yeah. So so you can curry favor with your advertisers or or play nice to people or whatever. I remember when I was at Video Magazine, we had uh, the editor then at the time decided that, I think we were just coming into 1990, and he decided that we should have 90 for the 90s. So we gave out 90 awards. And I mean, we were giving awards to whatever. We didn't review that much. I don't think we had reviewed 90 pieces of equipment that year. I, I can't, we did four. Yeah, no, we had not. And yeah. so we were just giving awards to all kinds of random crap. And, and it was so funny because I was sitting in our meeting room and all the awards were, you know, they came in, you know, the, the boxes of them came in and we we're going to give them away at some ceremony. And um, my, my old mentor, Lance Braithwaite, he and I were, you know, everyone's kind of look at the awards and everybody leaves the room as if for me and Lance and Lance kind of gets up with this sort of dramatic flourish and he goes and kind of puts his hand to his chin like he's thinking really hard. <laughs> and then he goes and pulls out about of the 90, he pulls out about six and he says, there, there's the Lance Braithwaite Awards. And he sort of storms out of the room. <laughs> nice. So anyway, I'm saying that a lot of times awards don't mean as much as you think, but I think these do because yeah. there's no. Hey, look, there's it's a zillion publications. They're not. They're you 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 can't combine a zillion publications and curry favor with advertisers, right. and I and it, it's also not driven by personal relationships it's you know because there's just too many people involved in too many countries so this is i think this is a, a really legit and interesting thing it doesn't mean that these are the things i would necessarily pick but that's good yeah and and i think it's kind of one nice thing about it is you know since we were just talking about how super high-end this industry's gotten there are a lot of products i would say the vast majority of the products in here are are affordable mm, yeah yeah the Kef LS60 that we talked about so much in the last mm -hmm. episode, that was a pick. That was their pick for best wireless floor standing loudspeaker. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't know how many of them there are, but uh, uh, however few, many of them there are, it's, it was yeah. it was ranked the best, you know, across all of the publications that voted for it. So. Yeah. What did, what stood out to you? What were some of your favorite products? Well, I thought, you know, one thing I want to point out here is, we, you know, we're talking about affordable products and they focused on one of the things that got an award was this Argon Audio TT4 turntable. And I'd never heard of Argon Audio before. However, you know, reading the, the write-up that's here on, uh, on Soundstage, and I believe these write-ups are generic to all of the participants and all the Correct. participants have to post this thing and post this write-up and mm -hmm. so um this is uh uh as they say a relatively young brand and it has become one of the largest turntable manufacturers in scandinavia now i don't know how big of a distinction that is i don't know how many turntable manufacturers there are in Scandinavia. But yeah. whatever. Um, but this thing is really nice. It's a it's a very nice turntable. It's it looks like it's very well made. It's 650 bucks US. Um it's got a built-in uh phono preamp mm. and uh comes with a good Ortofung, you know, two MRI cartridge and comes in like four different with it's just, just a really nice product at a very affordable price. And I, I think it's just really nice that they're focusing on stuff like this. That's just not crazy that, that, you know, average people can afford to go, you can go afford to buy the, you know, the EISA 
Best Value Turntable 2022 to 2023. Yeah. Hey, I want to say something real quick. Gordon Brockhouse, who did mm-hmm. our review of the KEF LS60, uh, emailed me and pointed out that that <laughs> when we were talking about being able to, you know, sort of plug a turntable into those speakers, we forgot to yeah. mention the fact that you would need a preamp, a phono preamp. And yeah. I just realized maybe some of our listeners who aren't into vinyl or things like that might not understand why. Why you need a phono preamp and why it's yeah. significant that this thing has a built-in phono preamp. So let's talk about that and what that means. Okay. Well, well, it's so so with with uh, the signals coming off of off of a turntable, off of a the, the turntable cartridge, mm-hmm. are you know in order to get the best sound from a turntable um, and from a the, from the whole system, the record and everything like that, they made decisions you know way 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 back many decades ago about how to do that. And one of the things they do is they reduce the amount of bass that goes on to the record. Because if you had a lot of bass, your grooves would have to be really fat and you wouldn't be able to fit as much music on there. Yeah. And then they also boost the treble going onto the record and then they cut it going back, which basically gives you sort of a, a simple, you know, a really simple means of noise reduction. Yeah. And there's like a reverse EQ curve in the preamp. Right. So the preamp has to have a reverse EQ curve. Otherwise the record sounds really bad. Right. And so with this, with this Argon audio turntable, the preamps built in, but you can go buy a preamp for anywhere from, uh, literally $15 to about a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Depending on what you want to spend, but you have to have one and it can be built into the turntable. It can be separate. Mm -hmm. Uh, it could be built into the, uh, whatever device you have. And there are powered speakers that have a built-in phono pre. Mm-hmm. Not the CAFs. Not the CAFs. So yeah, I just wanted to point out, if, you're, if you've got the CAFs, you want to add a turntable, you need something like the Argon Audio TT4. So Yeah, so what? which of these products did you like or that you know, caught your eye? I really like the System Audio Legend 7.2 Silverback speaker. Never heard um, of them. Who are they? I've never heard of them either, but I have heard of the technology built into them. So these, interestingly enough, are, this is a wireless version of a speaker that has apparently been pretty well reviewed from the company that was previously passive. So they've taken what was a popular passive on-wall speaker um, and added WISA wireless technology to it. A few mm-hmm. years back, I would say, gosh, maybe three, three years ago or something like that, I reviewed a system from a company called Enclave, which was an entirely wireless 5.1 system. It, mm-hmm. You know, basically it's as easy to connect and set up as a soundbar, but it is a true 5.1 system with a dedicated center, left and right, surround, subwoofer all wireless you still have to plug them into power but they're, you're not stringing wires and this mm-hmm. this system audio legend 7.2 silverback is using the same wireless technology so you have a little source device box that transmits wirelessly to these speakers and you can buy them one at a time two three four five what have you but i just think it's really cool because i i don't know why but on wall speakers are just a category that have never really taken off, but I think there's a lot of merit to them. And I also think it's really cool that they're taking this on wall speaker and adding this WISA technology, which I think, look, a lot of people, and my dad is one of them. Uh, you know, my dad ended up with all in ceiling speakers for his mm-hmm. uh, media room system, which is, in my opinion, less than ideal. But oh, yeah. he simply did not want speakers, cables running around the room. 
right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a valid concern. He cares more about that than he cares about, you know, the, the audio perfection. I think these these speakers probably address some of the concerns that a lot of people have about running wires. You just need a power outlet somewhere nearby them, but you could build a wireless on-wall speaker system, and I just think that kind of rocks. I agree, and that's, you know, that fits into a lot of decor, and I, I still don't think on-wall speakers can deliver as spacious a sound as freestanding speakers. However, they can come really close and they can deliver flat, flat frequency response. And I think I, I've reviewed a ton of them because, you know, that used to be a really big deal in the, in their earlier, you know, in the 90, not 90s, the, 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 the double knots. Um, when you, there were a lot of companies doing like uh, on-wall speakers that were supposed to go with plasma TVs mm-hmm. and a lot of companies threw a lot of money at it. And you don't see that many of those anymore. But this one, mm-hmm. this one's only a thousand bucks a piece, by the way. Yeah, so per speaker. A, l- a little more than a thousand. And so that is to me a really cool thing that you can go buy these things. You don't have to think about decor. You just hang them on the wall mm-hmm. and you plug them in. You're going to have cords coming down from them unless you're really a snazzy installer type person. And, um, but you're going to have something that is a really decor friendly product that I guess if these guys voted for it, it must sound pretty good. So. Yeah, and if you've got the little wireless stereo hub, it that adds AirPlay, that adds Bluetooth, Chromecast, Spotify Connect. So you could just, you know, I mean, it's really easy to get music to these things. And in my opinion, although convenience is a really dirty word in our hobby for some reason, I think mm-hmm. the easier you can make it for people to listen to an elevated listening experience, well, the more likely you're going to be able to get them to listen to an elevated listening experience. So, you know, technologies like that just right at hand to me encourage better quality listening, which is, I think, cool. I think very cool. So, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really like, you know, getting rid of some of the, the problems that you have with, with installation and getting other family members to, to think that that thing is okay in the room. And these are like nice white speakers that look, you could just hang them on a wall and probably nobody would really notice them all that much. Yeah. So I wanted to mention one more product in there that I think we're both pretty familiar with. And that is the, uh, SVS prime wireless pro powered speakers. Yeah. And so this is, so SVS came out with their first, uh, you know, prime powered speakers. What was it? Two, three years ago. And uh, a little more than that. I have them. These are, those are actually the speakers that I mix this podcast on when I do it. I love oh, these wow. speakers okay. so much. So, so I have the original. Yeah. Anyway, so those came out, but a lot of people thought they didn't have enough bass. So SVS kind of re-engineered them a little bit and came up with a bassier version. And they are, I'm sure they cost a little bit more because they, they're bigger. They're a little bit bigger. Um, I don't know how much they cost. Let me look real quick. Uh, we talked about them a few episodes ago. So the pros are like 700, 800 a pair. Yeah. 800 a pair. Okay. So, so that's a really good, and, and they have a lot of the same features of the other streaming type speakers that we've been talking about, like the mm-hmm. system audios and the caps and all that. Yeah. And, and they're just a plain old pair of, you know, bookshelf speakers. So there's no complicated installation or anything like that. You just basically set them on shelves or on stands or whatever you got. And you, you know, do all your configuration and your apps and stuff like that. But it's basically really 
very straightforward, very yeah, the simple. Only, the only thing I did to to my original uh, Prime Wireless was plug a subwoofer into them because they've got a they've got a subwoofer output. Yeah. And when you do it, engages a crossover. So you know the 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 criticisms about the original lacking bass were just if you use the stereo pair. If you add a subwoofer, they're full range and they sound amazing. So, but but these new ones, you you don't really need a sub. You got deeper bass. So yeah. Really Anything cool. else you want to talk about with the EISA awards in particular? You know, I thought one one thing that I thought was cool is this little Sonus Faber Omnia won an award uh, for all oh, in yeah. one loudspeaker. So we we've talked before about sort of all in one systems, and I, I contrasted the 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 Kef LF sixty with things that have sort of a desktop uh, form factor. Well, mm-hmm. the Sonus Faber Omni is one of those. It's sort of a desktop system. This is the one that you would put on your desktop or even maybe on your, I don't know, bedroom credenza or something like that. But it's just a really cool all-in-one streaming speaker. I think you could hook your TV to it and it functions kind of like a sound bar, but maybe better. Yeah. It's got Rune connectivity. It does Tidal Connect, Spotify Connect. I think one of the coolest things about it, one of the reasons I'm drawn to it, if I'm going to be honest with you, is it's just mm-hmm. gorgeous. Like it is this really thing pretty. looks like a piece of sculpture. So Yeah, as we kind of expect from Sonus Faber. And it's 2000 bucks, so it is not uh, crazily priced. Mm-hmm. It's not cheap. I mean, it's one of the most expensive all-in-one wireless speakers I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But, boy, you're really getting... Uh, uh, something that is really extraordinary from so many, so many different standpoints. Not only, I mean, I assume it sounds good. These guys voted for it. Sonus Faber makes pretty good stuff, but it's, it's just such a, honestly, it's kind of nice to buy something and have it be a conversation piece a little bit. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, you, you buy this thing and you put it in your living room and people are going to be like, wow, the thing is cool. And you (laughs) play music on it. And maybe, I mean, I assume it sounds good. And, you know, probably, uh, you're going to take a lot of pride in in showing this thing off, and it's got a it's got a real wood top on it too, or, yeah. or you know wood veneer, you know plywood top. It looks just gorgeous, and it's got um, HDMI arc. Yeah, so you so. can use it as a soundbar. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this this would be nice. This is this is actually something that like I mean, normally I just say I'm so I've been doing audio for so long, and normally I say the best way manufacturers can bribe me is to put a FedEx or UPS return label in the box <laughs> with the product. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. I could get rid of it as fast as I can because yeah. I just my house is full of this stuff. I've got at least a dozen USB interfaces I'm evaluating right now, and then I go on to speaker phones, and I go into I don't know how many soundbars I have, but this thing, like if 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 you know, I would actually like like I you know I was looking at it. There was a Sweetwater thing, you know, Sweetwater the pro audio dealer. Mm-hmm. I'm like you know register to get ten thousand bucks worth of free gear, and I kind of looked at it and like. I don't want all that stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm. this thing, like, I would be like, oh yeah, I want that thing. Yeah, Absolutely. if they forgot, if they forgot to send me a return label for this one, I would not be mad. That, yeah, and I, I haven't heard it, but I've while. I've talked to people who have heard it, and they say it actually sounds really darn good. So yeah, I think uh, Doug Schneider from our, our our leader at Soundstage heard it and thought it was really impressive, and did a a pretty lengthy uh, write up about it somewhere yeah. or another. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about from these awards, man? No. I, well, uh, we will we will have links in the show notes, by the way, to to the uh, to Soundstage's coverage of this, and also we are going to link to Darko Audio's YouTube post about this because yeah. John Darko did a really 
cool job in video form of sort of explaining some of the background politics of the voting, how it's changed in recent years and over the years and his philosophy on it. So we're going to also link to that, but we'll have a, we'll have a link to both uh, our coverage. If you want to read print John's, if you want to watch a video, but uh, anything else? No, that's all. Let's um, let's get out of this thing. All right, man. Well, we got to do some credits first. We do. Uh, you are listening to the Soundstage Audio File Podcast with Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger. Yes. And um, we are a presentation of the Soundstage Network, which is a collection of nine microsites dealing with all sorts of different kinds of audio. Yeah, and we should say this is a, what is it? What did we decide? This is a Butterburger production? Yeah, that, Butterburger that, that means, production. That means one of us mixed it and mastered it and everything. So yeah. we're not going to tell who. Music. Who did the music, man? The music is always some kind of stuff, usually some kind of stuff by me. And uh, fingers crossed, I will draft my good friend Dan Gonda to play some uh, flute or piccolo for me on one of the tunes. So if you hear flute or piccolo, it's almost certainly Dan. Oh, cool. If you don't hear flute or piccolo, then I couldn't talk Dan to do it in time. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess that's it. And we'll see everybody in a few weeks. Cool. Bye, everybody. Bye.